0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 259, Camping Time. Before I start, I'd like to tell you about a podcast that I think you're going to like. It's called The Brain Food Show, and it's a podcast by the team that also does the wildly popular Today I Find Out YouTube channel. And when I say wildly, I mean wildly. Simon from the podcast got in touch, so I went and had a look. And it's got a great upbeat style. It's got a bit of banter and really interesting topics, most importantly. So what the podcast does is to go into depth on historical curiosities. So for example, stuff like how famed Enlightenment thinker Voltaire made his fortune by helping to rig the lottery. And then the time that Julius Caesar was captured by pirates and all the hilarity that ensued from that. Anyway, give them a go. Search for The Brain Food Show with Simon Whistler, available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, I'm aware also that the title of this episode sounds as though it is sponsored by the Caravan Club. I would be proud to be so sponsored. Come and talk to me, Caravan Club, because I'm a lover of the things, having spent a reasonable portion of the holidays of my youth inside one. But this episode is not about that kind of camping, or indeed about the kind of camping where you keep tripping over guy ropes when you get caught short in the middle of the night and head for the bushes. This is about rebellious camping performance camping about camping of the mind and spirit. Of course I don't want to oversell it because every day here at the History of England is a day of drama and fireworks, a constant and veritable celebration of drama and fireworks in fact. This person having their innards torn out, that community having their religious traditions trampled on, these monarchs doing unspeakable things. So look, I realise that the pageant of history through which you are dancing with me sets a high bar for rum goings-on, and your senses may have become somewhat wearied and deadened. Oh, please, not another burning! Rebellion, yawn, so bored. But seriously, this week I have for you a dinger that will hum like no other. In short, gentle listeners, we are talking about a concatenation, a confluence, and you don't get much more thrilling than one of those. I promise we'll also talk about that thing I talked about last time. So let me stop warbling and get on with it. 1549 would be a big year for England when a concatenation and confluence—there you go—of religious change, economic dislocation, and social turmoil all came together with a rather remarkable set of ideas of the Commonwealth to produce a conflagration. Let's start with the religious bit and talk about Thomas Cranmer and religion, shall we not? to remind you of the context, religion-wise. Historians are by and large agreed on one thing, that religiously speaking, it's confused out there. That it's way too soon for anybody to be claiming England to be a largely Protestant place. Traditionalists are still in the majority, in all probability. But the religious visitation organised by Cranmer that we mentioned before, was still proceeding around the country, making sure images and the defined practices were not being abused. And as the visitations proceeded there was chaos. Some enthusiasts ripping images down, sometimes resistance to the commissioners who ordered that to happen. The council, rather disingenuously actually, noted that the chaos was least in those places where the images had been taken down already, and so they ordered all the images to be removed from the churches, whether they were being used according to the rules or not, which is probably messing up cause and effect. Anyway, in effect what was happening is that the gloves were being removed. Usually, the commissioners went ahead with their work and met with the usual English response to outrageous provocation. A bit of foot shuffling here, some eye-rolling there, and for the bravest of the brave, maybe a brief burst of tutting. Think of what happens when you push into a queue in England. If you've not done it, go and have a try, just for fun. In some places, though, commissioners did meet with more serious resistance. On the 5th of April, in the village of Helston in Cornwall, for example, a local chantry commissioner was hacked to death and the mob swelled to 3,000 before being put down by the local gentry. It was a warning. Meanwhile, England was awash with new Protestant religious publications, many of them railing against the mass, as the rules about censorship had been relaxed by the government. Thomas Cranmer, then. Dermot McCulloch is an historian at Oxford University and the definitive biographer of Cranmer. He describes the core principles that Cranmer held dear like this. One should make haste slowly and be sensitive to the prejudices of those Christians who had not yet been made conscious of their elect status, but one should never abandon the eventual goal of reform. So, make haste slowly, but never forget where you're going. And Cranmer never did. Cranmer undoubtedly mourned the death of his king, Henry VIII. It also undoubtedly transformed his life. Margaret Cranmer, his wife, returned to England and they lived openly together, though still in defiance of the law at this point, it must be said. Cranmer also grew a beard, which I can tell you is a liberating experience, especially if you have a double chin. But Cranmer had a less shallow reason than I did to grow one growing a beard had become a symbol of the rejection of papal authority all over Europe. If you look at contemporary illustrations of reformers from all over the place, you'll see them with nice bushy beards. In 1549, with the visitations underway, Cranmer could take the next step on the road. It would be enshrined in an act of uniformity in June 1549, and it's known to us as the Book of Common Prayer. As I said last week, the Book of Common Prayer was to become a central and unifying part of English culture. Even the most irreligious of us will have heard at least some of its words. But it was also initially very divisive, as we'll see, and actually in the future it will prove divisive as well as unifying. There's one of the uniformly excellent In Our Time podcasts on the topic, by the way, where they note that the prayer book would be rejected by nonconformists of the 19th century, forming part of a long English tradition of loyal dissent a tradition which will mark the book's introduction as well, or at least the descent bit. Anyway, the 1549 edition was very typical of the man who created it. Editor is a better word than author for Cranmer in this case, since much of the content was brought together from a variety of sources with very significant revision and melding by yours truly, Thomas Cranmer. The prayer book, along with the manner of his death ironically, may be Cranmer's greatest achievements. I was talking about the book being typical of the man. In what way, I hear you ask? Well, thank you for asking. Firstly, the very reason for creating it went to the heart of the aims of the reformers. It was to make worship accessible to everyone, to put the ordinary person into the heart of practice, to involve, to engage, participation. They wanted to strip away all the complexities. So for Cranmer, this was his way of achieving that, and i explain how in a moment. However, it's worth noting that it's also a deeply compromised document. Cranmer's great adversary, Gardiner, would seize on the book when it was published and triumphantly declare that traditionalists could live with it as well. They could interpret it or misinterpret it in a way consistent with traditional practice. Because, as we've said, Cranmer's concern was to move slowly, to take as many people with him as possible. He was dissatisfied with the prayer book from the start and he knew it would need to be revised, and within three years it would be. But, you know, step by step, baby steps. So, we were talking about complexity. The existing situation was something of a mess. There were eight different services through the day. There was a breviary, but different dioceses tended to use different ones. There was a missal, there was a manual, which basically dealt with baptism and death, and then there was a cascade of rules and regulations on all manner of stuff. And all of it, of course, in Latin. So, this took. And like a garden in the early autumn, he cut it all back. There would now be just two services a day. Everything you needed would be in one single book of common prayer. Everything you need, all in English. Common, you see? Common to all. No messing. So there's that. There's simplicity, order, structure. But there was also practice. A collection of old traditions were simply pruned away the tradition of the priest turning to Golgotha, the need for silver bells at particular moments. The priest instead was to turn towards the congregation. The host and the chalice were not to be elevated anymore. The priest was to be a minister now and the bread and the wine were simply placed on the altar. The rich vestments of the priest were curtailed. Now the minister would only wear a simple surplice. When I say only, I mean he would wear normal clothes under the surplice. Otherwise Thomas Cranber really would have been a radical. So a whole load of these old traditions go, and your attitudes towards that depends, I guess, on your basic mindset. If I read a Catholic historian like Richard Rex, the page drips with the regret and empathy for the pain of a people whose well-worn ways of doing things were being discarded and changed. Others emphasise the simplicity, openness and directness of Cranmer's new services. He pays your money and takes your choice. I remember my folks' dismay when the King James Bible was replaced by the updated authorised version, I think it is. They felt like they'd lost an old friend. So, structure, simplicity, directness. But then there's language. Now look, Cranmer was an academic and a humanist academic at that. The real and present danger was that the new prayer book would be an impressive and unreadable mass of rolling phrases drawn from the finest Greek and Latin. And yet it was not. And here's Cranmer's genius. Cranmer aimed for language that could be used again and again. It must have a cadence. It must support that wonderful shared experience of reciting a litany, satisfying phrases and rhythm that stays with you all your life. At the same time, it must be easy to understand by everyone, not just the well-educated elite. Otherwise, might as well just stick to Latin. One of his objectives was that the book would encourage every individual to be inspired to continue reading and learning more about what they'd found in the Book of Common Prayer by reading the Bible as well. So the language had to be accessible. Now, it's a long, long time since I've looked at the Book of Common Prayer, but bits of it come back to me as I write. They're still in there. In particular, Cranmer changed the marriage service, adding the phrase that marriage was, for the mutual society, help and comfort, that one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. This is a welcome change from the rather functional avoidance of sin and begetting of children, so maybe this is Thomas's experience of life with Margaret Cranmer making itself felt. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here and all that. And of course, phrases like ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The prayer book was also radical in what it changed about doctrine, although it would take until the 1552 version to really complete this. But the move was towards a service of remembrance rather than a magical transformation in the mass. So everyone was to take communion now once a week, not once a year as previously, and they were to take both bread and wine in both kinds, as they called it, rather than just the bread in one kind as before. Cranmer's new Book of Common Prayer then was produced alongside an act enforcing its use by everyone. Any minister that refused to use it would be put away for six months and lose his position. Nobody would be burned. Around the same time, another change was made the end to clerical celibacy. English ministers of the church could now marry and have a family. And finally, one other part of the revolution was simply in the extraordinary novelty of a country now able to ensure that every single one of its 8,000 parish churches had a copy of the same new prayer book. Only the arrival of printing, of course, made this possible. And also Tudor administration might look ramshackle to us, but it proved its efficiency in 16th century terms by doing all the rest and getting the book out to all of the churches. We will see in a moment how the new prayer book was received. But before we do that, we need to add another ingredient to the stew. I think you should have got the message by now that we're talking about a time of great dislocation, enormous economic distress, as rising prices and a rising population meant that the poorest and most vulnerable in society stood constantly on the edge of famine under the immense pressure, many were forced to move, to look for work. And they were often greeted in the new towns and villages that they came into, with the stocks, whipping, even branding. And while Cromwell's poor laws helped people look after their own parish, vagabonds were viewed with great suspicion, i.e. people who moved. Now, obviously, society looked for explanations for all these problems. The debasement of the coinage was identified as a problem and even the flow of silver from the Spanish and Portuguese colonies. But people could not understand why people had to move. This had rarely happened before, nothing on this scale. So often they assumed that these were simply idle 'er ne'er-do-wells, and underneath all of this, of course, was also a tinge of panic that this would turn to social unrest and violence, hence much of the brutality. But amongst all of this, there was one reason that early modern men could understand and hang on to something solid, and that was enclosure. I have to admit that I have talked about enclosure before, in the context of the late 15th century, sorry about that, but you know, repetition is the mother of education. What is the mother of education? That's right, repetition. It's not necessarily the mother of entertainment though, is it? Anyway, in brief, enclosure is the process of consolidating small groups of land into larger plots, or that's engrossment often, and taking land previously held as common strip farming, fencing it in, putting sheep onto it often. Thomas More spoke of sheep eating the people, Wolsey legislated against it. And there's quite a historiographical tradition to enclosure. For some historians it's been part of a socialist tradition, the strong stealing from the weak. For others, many modern historians in fact, the level of change and extent of enclosure has been rather overemphasised and often peasant families were working these things out as a community or profiting from the process themselves. Probably the truth that it was at all of these things in different places. But however far legend was fact or fact legend, the point was that people could point at people enclosing fields and changing ways of life and say, there, there it is, there's the problem. Those nasty landlords are destroying our precious way of life. At the same time, a way of looking at English society had come about in the early to mid-16th century, which has become labelled under the general title of the Commonwealth, and the writers associated with it became labelled as Commonwealth Men, though the phrase Commonwealth Men is a modern 20th century term. The idea of Commonwealth, though, in general, was a well and common language at the time, and it was thoroughly traditional in Genesis. The idea was that each part of society had their part to play and that each must play it properly and well for the Commonwealth to flourish. But in the context of the times, the Commonwealth rhetoric begins to sound refreshingly, well almost modern, at least challenging to the elite, challenging them to reform their behaviour in the interests of social justice We have to be super careful about this. Firstly, really, that argument has been pretty much one that there is no Commonwealth men movement in the sense of any organised party or group. And secondly, when I say social justice, I'm consciously using a modern term with inappropriate connotations for Tudor times. Social justice categorically does not mean social equality, but it is undeniable that there is a body of writing and opinion that challenges the behaviour of the political classes and landholders and tells them to reform. It advances a vision of society working together for the benefit of all, not for the disproportionate benefit of a tiny minority. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right. Obviously, the church had always led a sense of responsibility for the poor of yesteryear, meaning the poor cottager, who in times of economic distress was the first in trouble and needed support by the local church or society. But everything gets taken up a notch in the context of the dissolution of the chantras and the way that the money is used. The preacher Hugh Latimer is a jolly good example, and his background as the son of a yeoman probably spurred him on. He understood the context. He was a charismatic preacher, and after Henry's death was back to preaching to the most influential of the land, at court. He was close to Cranmer and lived with him at Lambeth for a while. The theme Latimer followed, and many evangelical preachers the same, was a condemnation of what they called covetousness, a love of money which can only have been exacerbated by the feeding frenzy of the sell-off of the monasteries and chantries. Here's Latimer then. In time past, Men were full of compassion, but now there is no pity, for in London their brother shall die in the street for cold, he shall lie sick at the door between stock and stock, and then perish for hunger. Latimer looked his gilded court audience square in the face. You, landlords, you rent-raisers, I may say you step-lords, for you have your possessions too much. This has caused much dearth, that poor men which live of their labour cannot, with the sweat of their faces, have a living. But simple greed such as this was not the only problem. Flying in the face of tradition was also the problem, abandoning the traditional farming that had served communities so well since time immemorial. Those graziers, enclosers, whereas have been a great many householders and inhabitants, there is now but a shepherd and his dog. Peter Aykroyd, in his book on the Tudors, makes the observation that we look now at hedgerows with great affection. We think of them as sort of time capsules almost, and natural motorways and refuges that protect the wildlife that we have left. In 1549, for some, the hedge had become a symbol of change, repression, poverty and misery. Essentially, competition and contract was replacing the old ways of mutual obligation. However, as I've said, put out of your mind any idea of social equality or social change. Latim also preached furiously against what he saw as ill discipline and social unrest. When the rebellions came, he was in the front line condemning them for daring to take up arms against the established order. In fact, the Commonwealth men were deeply conservative, reaching back to their medieval ways of doing things and its security. These are not John Balls questioning the justice of social hierarchy. Now, you can imagine that the squirearchy as represented in Parliament would have made short shrift of these views, possibly nodding approvingly in church on a Sunday and then nipping round the back to tell their tenants that inflation meant they'd have to double the rent next month. But interestingly, these Commonwealth views found sympathetic ears in the political hierarchy right at the top of it. They found sympathetic ears stuck to the head of the Duke of Somerset. If he were the devil, he would have him heard is a contemporary opinion of Somerset, which is a phrase that spookily seems to appear in A Man for All Seasons attached to more... Huh. Anyway, it is attached to Somerset, indicating that here was a man that believed in justice and equality before the law, and we know he practised what he preached. He personally pursued cases on behalf of poorer members of society who had appealed to him for help. And now, in June 1548, he ordered a commission set up to inquire into illegal enclosures and enforce existing legislation which had been introduced by Wolsey as far back as 1517. And to lead this commission, he appointed one John Hales, a personal friend of his and a fervent believer in the ideas of the common wheel. Hales set to work with some enthusiasm. As he and his commissioners toured the country, he reported to Somerset that the great and the good closed ranks in his face, as you'd expect, bribing jurors, bribing sheriffs. Meanwhile, Hales doesn't appear to have taken a measured political, professional, calming approach to his work, not a bit of it. Instead, he offered up impassioned sermons against rich landlords and their evil doing. Amongst those in power lining up against Hales' radicalism was one John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, whose lands and rights were affected by this whole commission. Hales pressed on regardless and brought two bills to set before Parliament to stymie enclosures. Guess how Parliament voted on that one? Mm, thanks for asking, no. However, he did manage to squeak through a poll tax on sheep. How did that happen? Well, because Somerset clearly promised a bunch of exemptions to the Bufters in Parliament as part of the deal. But then, within a few weeks, Somerset ordered repeat offenders to be punished. That seemed to break the deal that he'd made with said Buffters, upsetting the Bufties, of course. This is a thing about Somerset. There's a bit of the Katy Perry about him. He's hot and he's cold, he's in and he's out. Inconsistent. Contradictory. And worst of all, he gave the distinct impression sometimes of siding with the common man, the ordinary Joe. Was he doing this from conviction, or was he just courting popularity? But then who, in their right minds in the 16th century, gave a tinker's curse about popularity with the common man? No parsnips were buttered by such a thing. So as you can see, we have a bit of a right old mess developing here. There's radical religious reform, which is upsetting people, there's a lot of change going on, there's economic and social grief, people are finding it difficult, or large sections to put food on the table. And you've got all these people wandering around against all the social norms. And then on top of the pyramid, you've got a bloke holding the tiller of state who didn't appear to know what was expected of him as far as the political elite was concerned, the gentry. Your priorities, Somerset, are to maintain order, Uh, maintain order, and, ooh, maintain order. Social justice is a four-letter word. All that was needed for this big pile of kindling and nitrates was a detonator. And in one area in particular, it was the prayer book that provided the spark, or the finger on the detonator, whatever. So we are down in Cornwall in the far west of England. Villagers simply refused to accept Cranmer's new prayer book and they ordered their priests to wear the same clothes and deliver the traditional services in the good old way. When a local gentleman tried to reason with the villagers, he was hacked to death and he was buried north to south, which is the traditional way of burying heretics. The prayer book rebellion spread quickly. Any local gentleman trying to stop it was trapped and imprisoned. Interesting little wrinkle. Walter Raleigh, father of the Walter Raleigh, you know, cloak, puddle bloke, was one of the gents beaten by the rebels for his reformism. Somerset's response to this violence from the start was rather feeble, and he was a bit hamstrung, to be fair, about what he could do, because most of his armed forces at the time were up in Scotland or were distracted elsewhere by enclosure riots. He managed to send the Earl of Southampton westwards with a small force, but it was insufficient for the task, and Somerset had great trouble raising more men as he went. Now, rather than repeating the 1497 tactic of marching on London, 2,000 Cornishmen marched instead on Exeter. There is little doubt this was all about religion, and they were, shall we say, reasonably intransigent. There was none of the measured intelligence of the Pilgrimage of Grace. For those that did not join them, they had a very clear message. We will have them die like heretics against the holy Catholic faith. Hmm, Nice. They burned the new prayer book, demanded the suppression of the English Bible. Why would we want to read the Bible? Eyes were to be squeezed tight shut. Everything was to be as it was. Cranmer, on the other hand, was reasonably intransigent himself. He might support Latimer's fury against enclosure of the commons, object to the misuse of chantry funds but like Luther, like all the Commonwealth men and others, he was no social radical. Quite apart from the fact that this was his religious revolution, of course, which the Cornish were revolting against. Will you now have the subjects to govern their king, the villains to rule the gentlemen and servants their masters? If men would suffer this, God would not. The rebels reached Exeter and set a siege around it, bragging that the townsmen inside were merely birds in their coop. The direction of Somerset's response here was clear enough. He had little or no sympathy with the Prayer Book Rebellion. But his lack of resources meant his response was still unimpressive and inconclusive. One day ordering prices of bread to be regulated to try and placate the rebels, and then next day threatening dire consequences unless they immediately dispersed, following offers of pardon for those seeking repentance. You could see that the rebels might feel a lack of firmness from government, which would have been encouraging to them. But meanwhile, disturbances of a very different kind had flared up in Essex, Suffolk, Sussex, Hertfordshire, Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. It became known as the Rebellion of the Commonwealth and the rebels set up camps and issued petitions to Somerset. And here's the thing. Somerset's response to the demands of these camps was quite remarkable for its time, pretty much unprecedented. In a series of letters, he essentially agreed with them on many points. Obviously, he wanted them to disband, but they would be pardoned, and he admitted that their grievances were, and I quote just to make sure you don't miss it, for the most part, founded upon great and just causes. Golly! Some of the reasons for this are clear enough. These camp men, as they were also known, were not campaigning for a reversal of religious change. Instead, they often asked for greater changes in religion, and Somerset acknowledged this in his letters. Ye do acknowledge the Gospels which ye say ye greatly hunger for. The camps prepared and shared evangelical sermons. One group even offered to fight against the Western prayer book rebels. Some demanded better trained preachers. Familiar evangelical tropes, like removing pluralism, are repeated. The camps were mainly in the South, South East and East Anglia here, where evangelicalism was at its strongest. On the 10th of July, 1549, the biggest rebellion yet erupted in Norfolk, From Wyndham, the spark for the rebellion was an enclosure protest as it happens. The protesters gathered round an oak tree, which according to tradition can still be found there, and they found themselves a talented leader in Robert Kett, and thus the rebellion is often known as Kett's Rebellion. Kett's Rebellion stands in a proud line of English protest that links Wat Tyler, Jack Cade and now Robert Kett. I'm sorry, I don't really have the space for as much depth as I would like here, so how lucky is it that we have Shedcasts? Shedcast 30 is therefore entitled Hero of the People, and it's all about the rebellion in Norfolk. For you lovers of mysteries or conspiracy theories out there, it also includes an intriguing series of facts that cast a different light on Robert Kett's involvement. So, members, hi there if you have not already done so. Anyway, the rebellion spread through Norfolk, Suffolk and Cambridgeshire, Kett and his men took over the city of Norwich and made camp at Mousehold Heath near the city. There his camp swelled to as many as 16,000 men. What drove the rebellion of a Commonwealth in the camping time was not religion, but economic distress and social unease. They were, however, deeply conservative socially. What they wanted was an end to new stuff, to enclosure, an end to inflation. They wanted what they saw as greedy landlords stopped. However, in the camps on Mousehild Heath, there's an attractively democratic strand to the rebellion. Ket formed a governing council, for example, which was made up of representatives from the villages that had joined the revolt. And he even dispensed justice under an oak that they named the Tree of Reformation. The indignity of it all. Members of the gentry forced to doff their cap to their social inferiors and receive judgment at their hands. Just to make it worse for them, even unbearable, the mousehold court appeared to make responsible and reasonably mild judgments. It did not simply turn out to be a cover for vengeance. They sent a petition to Somerset, as did the other camps, and you can read said petition on the website if you so desire. Essentially, the camps resounded with ideas and excitement, with a sense of new possibilities, an air of freedom, ways to make a Commonwealth work for all people. So, while there's no way we consider this as a movement, as we've said, a Commonwealth party or anything so modern as that, there were without doubt common ideas around this ideal of the Commonwealth. A revolt in Yorkshire, by the way, by about 3,000 people, was incidentally considerably more radical. There should be no king reigning in England, the noblemen and gentlemen to be destroyed. It's interesting to see something quite so radical, but it's a bit of an outlier here. It's not typical of the general movement of the camping time. Now, I think it's fair to say that Somerset's interested, emollient and even sympathetic response to this was not to everyone's liking. On the council in particular, Somerset's supporter William Paget was now jumping up and down and laying eggs. Somerset! Forget all this namby-pamby. Oh, yes, you've got a good point, nonsense. Crush them, like we always do. Crush them! A letter survives from Paget, of which this following is part What seeth your grace over the king's subject out of all discipline, out of obedience, caring neither for protector nor king, and much less any other mean officer? And what is the cause? Your own lenity, your softness, your opinion to be good to the poor. Somerset's response was to order another enquiry into the enclosures with the power to pull enclosures down themselves. An egg dropped and smashed quietly under Paget's chair. Somerset issued a stream of proclamations to the rebels and unfortunately they often had sadly conflicting messages, sometimes harsh, sometimes conciliatory. He was convinced conciliation would work in the end and he simply did not seem to want to crush them but wasn't quite clear how to resolve the situation. He did suggest though that they stand for private reformation he said yet they must tarry a parliament time. Essentially, Somerset was promising these rebels a parliament to review their grievances. But meanwhile, the panic rose all around him. In London, troops were assembled to defend the king, and then a rumour suddenly circulated that Edward had been killed, and so Somerset was forced to wheel him out, riding through the streets, waving his cap to make sure everybody could see him, that he was absolutely fine. The Earl of Southampton in the west was desperate for orders, worried that his men would desert him, and at last he was given his orders by Somerset. The rebels were defeated at a brutal battle at a place called Kleist, where Southampton marvelled at the ferocity and courage with which the rebels fought. A thousand were slaughtered on the field of battle, and more hunted down as they fled into deepest Cornwall and into Somerset. Elsewhere, the gentry and magnates took action as they always did locally. So the Earl of Arundel, for example, invited his tenants to a slap-up feast and talked them round. Lord Grey of Wilton, on the other hand, killed... 200 rioters in Oxfordshire and re-establish control that way. And so attention was now focused on Norwich and Kett, the largest and remaining camp, because in Norfolk the magnate who would normally have organised policing was discredited and powerless, kicking his heels in the tower, namely the Duke of Norfolk. Princess Mary, who had taken over many of his estates and role, had no interest in getting involved in helping out the council the absence of local leadership is one good explanation for the success and relative longevity of Quet's rebellion. By the start of August, though, Somerset was reaching the end of the line. The last straw was probably the news that King Henry II of France was now threatening to attack Boulogne. Finally, Somerset knew that the issue was now not just whether the rebellion could be suppressed, but whether or not he could survive politically. And so finally, John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, was provided with 5,000 men with more to come and ordered to crush the rebels. By mid-August 1549, Dudley's army was outside the walls of Norwich and when negotiations failed, Dudley attacked. Despite fierce resistance and a furious counterattack by the rebels, Dudley held and took the city. Kett was forced back to Mousehold Heath. As Dudley threatened to surround him, he retreated again further back to the plains at Dussindale, encouraged by a prophecy that promised him victory there. Which is a shame, it has to be said, because it seems a poor decision. He was out in the open. Dudley followed while Ket desperately dug in and chained a line of posh in front of the hastily dug trenches, which is an amusing idea. None of it helped. Dudley's army of professional mercenaries hacked 2,000 to death before Dudley stopped the slaughter by offering a pardon, which was gratefully accepted. Kett ran for it, but didn't make it far. Nine leaders were hung from the Oak of Reformation by the 29th of August, while the local gentry, understandably upset at being chained together in front of 5,000 hairy pikemen, brayed for more. But Dudley was for mercy. The job was done. It would do his reputation little good locally, by the way. He'd already strung a bunch of rebels up in the market square in Norwich, and the slaughter at Dussindale would stay in the memory for many years. Robert and William Kett rode through the City of London on the 7th of September through crowds that gathered to see them. The trial delivered no surprises, but it was decided the pair should die in Norfolk. It took a while, but on the 7th of December, William was hung from the Tower of the Church at Wyndham, where it had all started. Robert was dragged by a horse from the Guildhall in Norwich to the castle and hanged in chains until the flesh rotted from his body. Interestingly, he became something of a local hero. There's a plaque on Norwich Castle there now, you can see, apologising for the hanging thing and thanking him for his part in the long struggle of the commoner people of England to gain their freedom. So camping time was finally over. Somerset might have breathed a sigh of relief, but I rather doubt it. He must have been aware that he had not covered himself in glory either way. There's no podcast next week, but in a fortnight there is and you can hear then how Somerset copes with the fallout from his handling of the camps. Until then, don't forget to have a go at the Brain Food Show podcast and if you do, I hope you enjoy it and you can tell me all the cool stuff I should know about so I can put it in the history of England. Until next time then everyone, thank you so much for listening, for your reviews and comments and so on. Good luck and have a great fortnight.